12, it's where we'll be this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 19. During World War II, the period of time from mid-1940 to mid-1941 is often referred to as the darkest hour. And this was a time when the nation of England was facing massive challenges. There was relentless bombing from German raids. France had fallen to Nazi Germany in June of 1940, really leaving England as the last major European power that was standing. The United States was not in the war yet, and so Britain felt alone with German invasion seeming imminent. Resources in the country were being rationed. And it was during this time that Winston Churchill delivered his famous speech to Parliament in which he said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never Surrender. A movie about this period, which tested the mettle of England and Churchill, was made in 2017, appropriately titled The Darkest Hour. This morning, we open to Acts 12, 1 through 19, and we see the church facing a dark hour. We leave the happy scene of the new mission center in Antioch, and we go back to the church in Jerusalem, and what you find there is a people under fire. Leaders are being killed or sitting on death row. Persecution is abounding from the hands of a prideful, violent puppet king. And in it, we see what the church needs in a time like that. We see how the church responds in the dark hour. And we get a clue about what may be needed from us when our own dark hour could come. Last week, as I said, we saw Antioch rising up as a mission outpost to the Gentiles. In the same way that Jerusalem was a mission center to the Jews, Antioch becomes the mission center for reaching the Gentile world. But the focus shifts from Antioch back to Jerusalem this morning. And we have James, the leader of the church, being laid to the sword. We have Peter, another one of the leaders, bound in chains being treated as if they're political zealots and insurrectionists. But we also see that in the church's dark hour, there are devoted instruments and there is diligent intercession and there is divine intervention. And we'll be encouraged as we read this text this morning that God does not abandon his church. He did not then and he will not ever. And so I'm going to pray for us and then we will read Acts 12, 1 through 19. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we are in your word. I pray that your spirit that dwells in us would build your church through your word this morning, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would give my voice strength to be able to get through this time. And I pray that you would give all of us, Lord, the strength when the dark hour comes. But as we'll see this morning... 
We have to prepare now. We can't wait. And so encourage us and exhort us where we need to be confronted, confront us, rebuke us this morning, where we uh, need, Lord, to be spurred on, to continue on, to persevere. I pray that you would indeed spur us on. Where we need zeal, give us zeal, Lord. Where we're spending our passions on wrong things, help us to pull it back and spend it on the right things. So this morning, God, we ask that you would bless this time as we study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts 12, starting in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Three teaching points for us this morning, and here's number one. In the dark hour, devoted instruments are needed. In the dark hour, devoted instruments are needed, and those instruments are the leaders of the Jerusalem church here in this passage. Chapter 12 starts with this account of the persecution of Herod Agrippa upon the early church in Jerusalem. The period of peace that was described by Luke in Acts 9.31 has come to an end. Just as in the time of Stephen's death, persecution is kicking up in Jerusalem. 
And Luke tells us that at about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This is Agrippa I. When it says Herod the king, that's who we're talking about. He's the nephew of Herod Antipas, the one who executed John the Baptist and who participated in the trial of Jesus, the one that Jesus called a fox. It's the only one he ever called a fox. The Herodian dynasty rose to power in the century before the birth of Christ and was solidified as the line of kings over Judea with Roman support about 30 years before Jesus' birth. While the Herods possessed the title king of the Jews, in reality they were puppets on the hand of the Roman state. And they had a track record for brutality and for unimaginable evil. From Herod I the Great, who ordered the mass killing of all the boys who were two and younger in Bethlehem after the visit of the wise men, to Herod Antipas, who divorces his wife to marry his brother's wife, Herodias, and then imprisons John the Baptist for speaking out about it. Then he executes John the Baptist after taking a silly oath to participating in the trial of Jesus. The Herodian dynasty was marked with salaciousness and with sin and sickening transgressions of God's law and God's character. And Agrippa I is a chip off the old Herodian block. Something we'll see clearly, not just this week, but also next week. Herod's violence leads to him killing James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is James, the son of Zebedee. John, the author of Revelation's brother. John, the author of the book of John's brother. James was one of Jesus' inner circle, along with John and Peter. Clearly a very important leader to the church in Jerusalem. The fact that he is put to death with a sword, hence that he's being killed as an insurrectionist, as a political criminal against the Roman Empire. Herod is framing this to Rome as, hey, we need, to, we need to kill this guy. We need to execute this guy. This is justified because James and these Christians, they're a threat to the Roman Empire. Of course, that wasn't true. That's how it was framed. And the death of James fulfills the words that Jesus spoke to him and his brother. In Mark 10, they come to Jesus. They want a favor. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, James and John... We're not quiet little guys. They were bold, fiery fishermen. And they ask with boldness to sit the most prominent place in the kingdom at Jesus' right and left hand. And what Jesus tells them is, you don't even know what you're requesting. You're asking me about glory in the kingdom and you don't even realize the kingdom is going to be won through suffering. 
And when he says, can you drink the cup that I drink from? Can you be baptized with my baptism? What he's asking is, can you endure the pain that I'm going to endure as the suffering servant who dies on the cross for his people? Now we know James and John could never bear that. They could never bear divine judgment for the sins of many. Only the God-man could do that, and only the God-man would do that. And yet, these brothers will suffer. Jesus tells them they will indeed drink from his cup and be baptized with his baptism. He's not saying they'll die on a cross and bear the sins of God's people. Instead, he's saying they will also obtain their glory through suffering. In the case of John, it's a life of persecution in ministry. He'll end up exiled on Patmos. And we've been talking about that in our Revelation study on Wednesday nights. In the case of James, he will die by the sword. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Acts 12. Verse 3 tells us all this is happening at Passover, and it pleased the Jews that this took place. And so in light of that, Herod, who is a people pleaser, says, well, I'll throw Peter in jail too. When verse 4 says Peter is put in prison, he's likely in the praetorium in Herod's palace on the west side of Jerusalem. Guarded by four squads of soldiers during the seven-day festival, verse 6 tells us how they were arranged. He slept between two of them. Two of them were guarding the door. Each squad would have been taking three-hour shifts. Make no mistake what the intent of Herod is here. He sees the pleasure in the people over the death of James. And so as he arrests Peter, it's not just to keep him in jail. It's to put him to death. He's going to bring Peter out before the people for a trial with a predetermined outcome. And then Peter will be killed just like his Christian brother James, just like his Lord. This is a dark hour for the Jerusalem church, is it not? They've already seen one of the apostles killed unjustly. Now their senior leader, Peter, is in chains. He's on death row. This would be enough to cause anyone to despair. And yet, in this dark hour, we have to recognize the sort of devoted instruments that we see in James and in Peter. How devoted was James? Well, if early church tradition is right, then this brother was about as serious as you could be. Because Clement of Alexandria who lived only a couple generations after the apostles, tells us that as James was being led to the execution block, he actually converted his captor. And that the captor was so convinced of James's Christian witness unto death that he was put to death with him. This is how faithful he was. Now, I want to caution us and say that church history is not inspired, it's not inerrant, it's not infallible like the Word of God is. We should definitely not put the level of stock in it that we put in Luke's account in Acts. But nonetheless, what a story of devotion in the dark hour. Secondly, we have Peter in verse 6 sleeping between the two guards, sleeping between the two guards. 
Now maybe he's just so exhausted from the whole trial that he fell asleep against his will. But from what we know of Peter, it is just as possible, and I think far more likely, that he has a peaceful tranquility in the dark hour that allows him to slumber on death row. It's reminiscent of Jesus napping in the boat in the midst of the storm in Matthew 8. It displays the immense amount of trust that Peter has in the God he serves. He is devoted to the Lord. And in his devotion, he's come to know a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so he is able to sleep as his death could be just hours away. Furthermore, In verses 17 through 19, after Peter is delivered and he crashes the church prayer meeting at the home of John Mark's mother, Luke tells us that Peter changes course in his ministry. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Peter shifts from leading the church in Jerusalem to mimicking the itinerant ministry of Christ. He goes on the road and Herod cannot find him. Sadly, for the squads of soldiers involved, Herod did find them. And they are put to death for allowing Peter to escape. But Peter disappears into the mission field. Though he stared down death in the dark hour, he's still a devoted instrument. He's the embodiment of his own teaching in his first epistle. Where he wrote, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And so Peter fearlessly strikes out into the wilderness of the world to proclaim the risen Jesus. And we won't see him again until Acts 15. And then there's one more group of devoted instruments in the passage that cannot be ignored. It is another James... And the brothers in Jerusalem. Obviously, this is not James, the son of Zebedee. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the author of the letter, the epistle of James. Verse 17 represents a transition in Jerusalem. It's a change in leadership. Peter is handing things over to James. How easy would it have been for James and the men in leadership in Jerusalem to say, Hey, enough of this already. How easy would it have been for them to turn and to run, but they don't. Instead, they take the baton from Peter. They continue to run their race with faithfulness. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked will run when no one is chasing them, but the righteous are bold as a lion. These brothers in Jerusalem, James in Jerusalem, they're a pack of lions. They're bold. Now, there's not a Christian in this room, I don't think, who reads this passage and doesn't want to be this sort of fearless servant that James and Peter and James and the other brothers are. No one wants to consider 
the reality of the dark hour and conclude, well, you know what, I'm probably too much of a coward and too craven to stand strong in a situation like that. But if we're going to be these sort of servants, then we have to have our priorities straight in the here and now. James and Peter's devotion, it didn't start in the dark hour. It already existed in them as men who had sold out for Christ. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the others in Jerusalem, they didn't suddenly grow in devotion and step up to the plate because there was nobody else to do the work. They were standing on deck. They had the bat in their hand. They were focused on honoring Jesus, whether the sun shined or not. If I could switch analogies, because I'm sure that some of your stomachs are starting to murmur, grumble a little bit. Let's think about dinner and going out to eat. If you're in the mood for steak, you go to a steakhouse and you prioritize steak. You might have some bread, you might have an appetizer, blooming onion, extra crispy. You might have a little dessert afterwards, but you didn't come for any of that. You came for the steak. You're happy about the baked potato, but you didn't show up to eat the baked potato. You came for the steak. The steak is the main course. What is the main course of our lives? What do we think about the most? What do we get anxious about the most? What do we spend most of our money on? If your possessions and the things that you own are the main course, if your politics and current events and the news and winning Facebook debates are the main course, even if something as good as your family is the main course, and Jesus is just an add-on, an appetizer, I'm going to tell you, your faith is not ready for the dark hour. We must seek His kingdom first. But if your strength is not found in created things, but in the Creator, then when the dark hour comes, you'll be prepared to take up sword and shield. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil wants nothing more than for you to fall in the dark hour. But those devoted to the Lord do not lean on themselves. They lean on the strength of the might of God. It's the strength of the might of God that would lead you to convert your captor. It's the strength of the might of God that will put you to sleep between prison guards. It's the strength of the might of God that will empower you to continue to lead in the face of potential death. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, and his believing brother, Faithful, go to Vanity Fair. It's a place where the world is loved and God is hated. They know going in, at least one of them will die. And they both secretly hope that it might be them. Because despite the pain of death, they know death means going to be with the king. The people at Vanity Fair take faithful and they scourge him 
And they beat him. They lance his flesh with knives. They stone him. They stab him with swords. They burn his body. And faithful comes to his end. Much like Peter's escape, we'll see in a moment, Christian is delivered by God. And as he leaves Vanity Fair, he sings, Well, faithful, you have faithfully professed unto your Lord with whom you shall be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights, sing, faithful, sing, and let your name survive, for though they killed you, you were still alive. Those are the sorts of songs that are sung about the Lord's devoted instruments. May we be found in their company when the dark hour arrives. Let's move to teaching point number two. In the dark hour, diligent intercession is needed. Devoted instruments are needed, and in the dark hour, diligent intercession is needed. Look at verses 5 and 12. In verse 5, while their leader is kept in prison, what is the church doing? They're praying. In verse 12, as the miraculously released Peter comes to the believers at the house of Mary, they're praying. This is intercessory prayer. Intercession is a word that means to act or intervene on behalf of another. When we speak of intercessory prayer, we have to begin by talking about the intercession of Christ. John Calvin said, God can listen to no prayers without the intercession of Christ. And in saying this, Calvin's making a statement about the effectiveness of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's making a statement about what the atonement of Jesus accomplished. Christ was the offering without sin that was laid down on the cross for our sake. He was judged there in our place. And a great and scandalous exchange was made where he gives us righteousness and he gets our gavel. We get his perfect righteousness credited to our account. And he is judged in our place as if he had committed our unrighteous transgressions of God's law. His resurrection proved that he is the Son of God and that he had truly paid for the sins of his people. And by faith, believers receive this gift of grace. And as the recipients of the gift, we are justified in the eyes of the Father. The Father does not look upon us with anger, but with adoration. He does not look upon us as wrath-deserving, but as righteous. And this enables you and I to come through the blood of the Son to the Father in prayer. It's beautiful. But if not for the blood of Christ, if not for Jesus as our great high priest offering himself as our intercessor, we would have no hope of our prayers ever being heard. This was foretold in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53.12, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's confirmed in the New Testament when the author of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Jesus, the intercessor who died in our place, continues to intercede for us right now as we speak, as our high priest, and that gives us confidence to come to the throne of grace as we have done in this very service. And so understanding that, we can go back to another word from from old Calvin, where he said, to make intercession for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. So as those who have access to the throne of grace, we should be boldly approaching the throne to pray for other people if indeed we love other people. We are beckoned to come and be intercessors for others knowing that Jesus is an intercessor for us. It's one of the greatest ways that you can show that you love your brothers and sisters in the church. It's that you pray for them. It's one of the most vital ways that we stand by one another in the dark hour. By getting on our knees and being intercessors. And here's the thing. God will do abundantly more than you imagine through your prayers. It's fairly clear in this passage the church was not praying for the release of Peter. Their reaction illustrates that, does it not? When Rhoda the servant girl comes and she says, hey, Peter's at the gate. They're like, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. They think that she's gone loony. Or they say, you must be seeing his angel because there was this Jewish tradition that everybody had a guardian angel and that angel looked like them. It's hard to imagine they would react in these ways if they were praying for Peter's release in the moment. Instead, it's more likely, and, and, and you can't blame them for this, maybe we would be praying in the same way, that they're saying, God, give Peter the strength to stand firm the way James did. Give him the strength to die, Lord. They're asking God to give him the courage to be a disciple unto death like faithful in Vanity Fair. But God just breezes straight past that request, doesn't he? And he sees to Peter's release in a miraculous manner. And this shows that God often takes our prayers and he does with them much more than we would expect. It shows how God loves to blow the doors off of our hinges, to expand our faith through answered prayer. Ephesians 3 verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And this should motivate us to pray zealously and, 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 and fervently for one another. Here's the deal. Sometimes you pray and your prayers are perfectly lined up with the decreed will of God. And His answer to you is just a yes. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
Sometimes we pray, and God says no. And he does this in order to make his power known through our weakness. As was the case with Paul with his thorn in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, Paul said, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So sometimes his answer is yes. Sometimes his answer is no. I'm going to show you how powerful my grace is. In your weakness, I'll show my strength. And then there are these times where God blows the doors off the hinges of our faith and says, you need a bigger door frame. And I'm going to answer your prayer and my infinite wisdom in a way that you would not even have thought to ask for. You don't even have the faith to ask for. And I'm going to do it to enlarge your faith. And that's what we're seeing in Acts 12. But whether we get the yes or the no or the abundantly more, we come to the throne of grace again and again in all hours, but especially in the dark hour. Otherwise, how can we say that God is our trust? If we don't come to Him, how can we say that we're not leaning on our own understanding? And so once again, we're confronted with our priorities. Do you pray? Do you forget to pray? How often do you lay in bed at night and go, man, I haven't prayed today. Lord, start a prayer and you don't get very far before you're trailing off into sleep. You're kind of giving God the Tupperware of your life, are you not? What's left over. Think about the things you don't forget to do. You don't forget to eat. You don't forget to get dressed. You don't forget to watch your favorite team. You don't forget the birthdays of people you love. If we don't forget these things, we cannot forget to pray. And when we pray, we cannot forget to pray for other people. We must show that we love our brothers and sisters by being intercessors for our brothers and sisters, demonstrating that love because God has first loved us in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you are prayerless, don't despair. That's what Satan wants you to do. Instead, repent and pray. Don't wait another day to pray. Turn away from your lack of intercession and set aside time for this work of love today. Because much like our devotion, we can't wait until the dark hour to pray. It needs to be our habit now so that when the sun is eclipsed, we'll be found doing what has been our habit all along, entreating the throne of grace. Final teaching point this morning, number three. In the dark hour, divine intervention is needed. Devoted instruments, diligent intercession, and finally, divine intervention. At the end of the day, when things get really dark, we just need God. It's that simple. We need the one who sits on the throne of grace to intervene. And that's exactly what God does in this passage. 
Notice how passive Peter is in the deliverance when it comes to this text. It's the Lord who sends the angel in verse 7. It's the Lord's angel who strikes him on the side and wakes him up and tells him to get dressed in verses 7 and 8. The Lord's angel gives him the instructions for the escape in verse 8. Verse 9 makes it clear Peter's not even sure if the whole thing's real. Thinks it might be a vision. They pass by the Herodian guards who are presumably asleep by God's supernatural intervention in verse 10. The iron gate opens by itself in verse 10. Next thing Peter knows, he's one city block away from the palace. And it's only then that he really realizes what has happened. He goes to Mary's house, the mother of John Mark. Seems like Mary was probably a widow because there's no husband mentioned. And the fact that she has this house that is large enough for the believers to gather in and for there to be like an outer gate speaks to the fact she's probably a woman of some wealth. And they're all there and Peter gets there. And when Rhoda, the servant, hears Peter's voice, she gets so excited, she leaves poor Peter standing out there on the other side of the gate. They don't believe her at first, as we said. It's only after Peter keeps knocking that they let him in, and they are amazed. He tells them what has happened and encourages them to report it to James. I agree with David Peterson, whose wonderful commentary on Acts suggests that this intervention of God in this passage is meant to make us think of another intervention of the Lord, the one that we see in the Passover in the Exodus. First of all, the whole account's taking place here at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's taking place at Passover, the feast that's instituted to remember God's divine intervention, his delivery of his people from the hand of Pharaoh. Just like in that situation, we have a mad king here who is laying violent hands on the people of God. Then in verse 6, God's rescue comes at night, just as it does in Exodus 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. In verses 7-9, through Peter is to wake up. He is to make his escape in haste with a cloak wrapped around him. Listen to Exodus 12.34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And then in verse 11, Peter worshipfully acknowledges what God has done for him. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. In the same way, the people of Israel, with Moses as their leader, sing this song to the Lord in Exodus 15, 1. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. It may seem unnecessary to draw these parallels, but in reality what they show us is that God has always been there to intervene for His people. He was there in Egypt. He's intervening for Him here in Jerusalem. God shows up for His people in the dark hour. When Adam and Eve sin and they're hiding in shame, there was God to slay an animal and make skins to cover their sinfulness. When God's people cried out in Egypt, there was God to raise up Moses. When God's people cried out 
in need of leadership. After the days of Moses, God raised up Joshua and then the judges. When Israel was trembling before the Philistines, God gave them David to slay Goliath. When God's nation was on the brink of apostasy, he gave them the prophets Elijah and Elisha. When God's people were in exile and Daniel's three friends are thrown into the fiery furnace, he sent the one like the Son of Man and protected them from certain death. We could go on from the mouths of the lions being shut to Nebuchadnezzar being brought low to God raising up the Persians to defeat the Babylonians. God is there for His people in the dark hour. And of course, there is no greater example of divine intervention than when God sent the Word made flesh, His Son, to come and rescue His people. A humble birth and a perfect life. An atoning death, a victorious resurrection, a crowning ascension, and an imminent return. It is God's greatest act of intervention when the bright and morning star came and lit up our dark night of sin. And so whatever we face now or may face in the future, the church can pray with confidence and the church can serve with devotion knowing the Lord intervenes for His people. As Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I'll ask the band to come and to return. <coughs> and as they do, I'll tell you that from 1918 to 1939, England experienced what we call the interwar period. It was actually a time of relative peace in the nation. The Great Depression did not impact England as severely as other nations. The country had strong allies coming out of the First Great War. And the British Empire reached the peak of its territorial expansion. No one could have known the evil that was brewing. No one could have known the evil that was going to enter the world through the Third Reich. No one could have known how dark the hour would be when Churchill took his office in 1940. But what it shows us is that times of peace do not last forever. It did not in England. It did not in the Jerusalem church. And we would be foolish to think that it will last forever in our great nation. I don't say that to fear monger. It's just the reality that severe difficulties for the church could be generations away or less. We simply don't know when a dark hour, like we see in Acts 12, may come. We don't know what the cause of Christ may cost us. So examine yourself now. Are you devoted? Are you praying? Are you trusting in God to act? The sun is still out. And we need to prepare for the dark hour while it's still shining. Father God, we give you praise for your faithfulness to us this morning. Thank you God for everything that you have done for us in Christ
And I pray, Father, that you would give us the strength that we need for the dark hour. Many in this room may be experiencing their own personal dark hours as we speak. And I pray that you would be with them, God. I pray that you would intervene for them in the way we've seen you intervene in this passage. I pray they would turn to you, Lord. For others, right now, things are all as it should be. There's a little knock here or there that they could look at and say, yeah, I'm a little concerned about this or a little concerned about that. But for the most part, things are pretty good. I pray they would use the peace time to pray to you. They would use the peace time to grow in faith. They would use the peace time, Lord, to be devoted to you so that when the dark hour comes, they would be ready. And for us as a church, God, not just us, but the church in our nation. Lord, we simply have, things have changed so much just in the last 20, 30 years. We simply have no idea what the landscape will be like a mere generation from now. And so, Father, let us do what your word calls us to do cling to you, to run to you, to flee from the devil, to draw near to you, to cleanse our hands and to cleanse our minds. I pray we would do that, Lord, and I know, God, that you will draw near to us as we draw near to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.